Amen. Well, good morning, church family. Uh, this past Thursday, people were glued to the uh, CNN.com website or to their televisions as the Perseverance Mars rover completed its seven-month journey across 470 million kilometers to go and roam around and take photos of this mysterious planet, the planet Mars. As, as we come to the Bible today, going through the storyline of Scripture, sometimes I wonder if, if we read these stories, as we read this history, we read it almost like we're, we're looking at images from another planet. It seems like another world with burnt offerings and a tabernacle and, and a, a miraculous rescue through a, a parted sea. It feels like another planet. It seems like it's another world. And it is true. We're separated from some of these stories by thousands of years. It is true that culture was very different at the time. It is true that technology has developed exponentially since those, since these events took place. But the truth is that the storyline of Scripture, as much as it feels like we're looking at a whole other world, a whole other planet, the storyline of Scripture is our story. And that although culture has changed and technology has changed, although we live in a totally different part of the world, the truth is, is those people then were still looking for the same things that we're looking for now. They're, they're still looking for a sense of purpose. They're still looking for some sort of sense of security or protection from the evil in the world. They're still looking to experience some sort of pleasure, some sort of joy, some sort of connection with one another and with their creator. And so it's important now as we continue our journey through the storyline of scripture and today just fair warning, we're going to cover 121 chapters of Old Testament law and narrative we need to be reminded that this is our story. The world that these people were living in is our world. The same struggles, the same desires are our struggles and our desires. The storyline of the Bible is our story. And so we come today to the book of Leviticus. I want to give you an opportunity to turn there in your Bibles. We're going to start in Leviticus. We're going to end off today in the book of Joshua. To bring us back up to speed, God created the heavens and the earth in six days. He spoke the universe into existence. He created Adam and Eve to be his vice regents, to have dominion over the whole world, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth with God's glory as his image bears. Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God, desiring to become God themselves. They were cast out of Eden. Things continued to spiral out of control for humanity. Sin increased. God judged the world through a flood. He rescued someone named Noah. But even with the fresh start of a new world, Noah still sinned just like Adam and Eve. And as the nations were being spread across, across the world after the Tower of Babel, God chose Abraham and his family to, to make a promise to them, to give them a land and to bless them and to multiply them, sort of renewing those original blessings given to Adam and Eve. 
And Abraham's descendants, as God predicted, were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God miraculously rescued them, gave them his law, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, and then had them built a tabernacle, which was to be the symbolic presence of him being among his people. And the tabernacle had an entrance to the east and this lampstand that looked like a tree and it was being guarded by these cherubim woven into the curtains. It's, it's very similar to the Garden of Eden. God wanting to dwell among his people. And now we pick up the story. God has rescued his people out of slavery. He's provided for them this tabernacle and he is now going to lead them on a journey to the promised land, the land that he had promised to Abraham. And so the title for today's message is Journey to the Promised Land. Journey to the Promised Land. And this story is our story. We are on a journey as well. God is leading us to a place that he has promised to us. Jesus said, I have gone to prepare a place for you. Jesus said, I am the way. He is leading us somewhere to a place that he has promised and prepared for us. Now we can chart the story here from Leviticus through the book of Joshua on a map. Let me show it to you here on the screen. So Exodus really charts the, the journey from Egypt across the Red Sea to Mount Sinai. The book of Leviticus, where we're starting today, also takes place at the base of Mount Sinai. Then the book of Numbers is was them wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. Then they head north to the plains of Moab. That's where Deuteronomy takes place. And then entering into the promised land is where, uh, we, where, we, where we read in the book of uh, Joshua. So we're going to begin in the book of Leviticus. And there's really three main movements of the story that we're going to look at today. The first one is this. It's worship. It's worship. So if you're taking notes today, jot down uh, for point one, worship. God had, had had them build the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. He gave the instructions for them to do that. There was, everything was sort of in question after the golden calf, after they give it, gave in to a idolatry, and then we see the tabernacle is constructed. So now they have this tent. They have an altar. They have the Ark of the Covenant. They have, they have this place to worship God. <clears throat> now, the book of Leviticus, it's sort of like the instruction manual for how to use the tabernacle. And so this whole book is just explaining how is God supposed to be worshipped as they are journeying to the promised land. Now, this, this book of Leviticus makes, makes clear three things. The tabernacle makes clear three things. First, God wants to dwell with his people. That's why the tabernacle was constructed. He wants to be there. But the tabernacle itself in its very construction, there's all these curtains, there's all these veils, there's, there are all these barriers separating the people. So as much as God wants to dwell among his people, sin separates us from God. And what we're going to see in Leviticus, we're going to see all of these sacrifices. And so sacrifice is the means by which God can dwell among his people, even though he is separated from them because of their sin and he is a holy God, sacrifice is the means by which God 
who is separated from us through sin can dwell among us. So let's start in Leviticus chapter one, verse one. That's a good place to start. It says, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offspring is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering. And it, notice this, it shall be accepted for him, instead of him, in the place of him, accepted for him to make atonement for him. Notice that when an offering was brought to the tabernacle, it was a place of sacrifice. They would lay their hands on the head of the animal so as to say, what is about to happen to this animal is what should happen to me, and then the animal would be slaughtered. That all of these sacrifices were a reminder that people were separated from a holy God because of their sin, and the wages of sin is death. And this animal dies in the place of the person making the sacrifice. Sacrifice is the way that sinful human beings are to relate to a holy God. And that's how the instruction manual of the book of Leviticus unfolds. We have all of these sacrifices, all of these feasts, all of these laws. Let me just break it down for you on a simple little a chart here on the screen. So you've got sacrifices, burnt, sac burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. These are all the different categories of sacrifices. Then there's these festivals or feasts, the Passover from the Exodus. We learned about that already. The feast of first fruits, of weeks, of trumpets, of atonement and of booths. And then all of these laws are, are, are spoken in the book of Leviticus. Laws about things like diet, about disease, about hygiene, about sex, and about social justice. And really to sum up the whole book, it's Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45. Be holy, for I am holy. And so God wants to relate to his people and he relates to them through his law. He relates to them through these festivals and he, these feasts and he relates to them through these sacrifices, burnt sacrifices, grain sacrifices, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. Now the book of Leviticus is not just all instruction manual material. It's not just all law. It's not just all about these feasts. There are some narrative portions as well. In Leviticus chapter 10, turn, turn with me there in your Bible, uh, something very concerning takes place. In Leviticus chapter 10, it says, Now Adab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, these were the priests, all the descendants of Aaron, Moses' brother, were the ones who were called upon to be priests in the tabernacle. They were the ones who were to offer the sacrifices. Now Nadab and Abihu, so they're new on the job, they're priests, Sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered an unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord, notice this, and consumed them and they died before the Lord. God is a holy God and sinful humans in the presence of God. If we do not approach God on his terms, if we do not worship him in his way, it doesn't matter how sincere Nadab and Abihu were. They entered into the presence of a holy God and they died. 
They didn't worship according to God's way. They worshiped according to their own way. And as a result of this, God then introduces this this one very important feast, the Feast of Atonement or Yom Kippur. In Leviticus chapter 16, now turn ahead a a few chapters in your Bibles to Leviticus 16 verse 1. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil. Remember, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Before the mercy seat that is on the Ark so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So what what Nadab and Abihu did is they went uninvited into the Holy of Holies. They went into the place that was the, the symbolic presence of God. They stood before the Ark of the Covenant. The footstool. God's throne is in heaven, but his footstool was the Ark of the Covenant. So God is now clarifying for Aaron. Look, here is when you can enter into my presence. It was once a year. Look at uh, verse 15 of Leviticus 16. There were multiple offerings and sacrifices that Aaron and the priests were supposed to make on the Feast of Atonement on Yom Kippur. Here's one of them. He says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil. So you don't go inside the veil without blood, without a sacrifice. And it says, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. The mercy seat is the top of the Ark of the Covenant where the cherubim, uh, little little statues have have been constructed on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 16 says, thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of all their transgressors and their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of the meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. You see, God wants to dwell among his people, but this sacrifice, which was to take place once a year, look at verse 34, and this shall be a statute forever for you that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. In order for God to dwell among his people, Once a year, this sacrifice was made on behalf of the whole nation so that God could dwell in their midst. So year after year after year, there was this feast, this feast of atonement, Yom Kippur, where the sacrifice, these sacrifices were made on behalf of the people so that God could dwell in their midst. Now, in the book of Hebrews, let me, let me show you on the screen here, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. It says, now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar for instance, incense and the Ark of the Covenant. So remember the diagram from from last week. We we have the the holy of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant, that's the second section. The first section, there's the table and the lampstand. And the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant is, they were only allowed to go in there once 
per year. Going back to Hebrews 9, it says the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood. There must be a sacrifice. He's got to take blood with him, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Then the author of Hebrews says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Jesus entered into a greater tabernacle, a greater tent, not the earthly one, but the one that is in heaven. It says he entered, notice this, he entered once for all. Not once every year, not just for the people of Israel, but he entered once for all, for you and for me. He, once, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Notice this, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, in the book of Leviticus, you have all of these sacrifices. Yom, Yom Kippur is just one of them. It happened annually, but you had all of these daily and regular sacrifices that had to be made in order for people to have a holy God dwelling in their midst because sin separated them. There was this routine, these rituals of sacrifices that must be made, but Christ died once for all, and he has secured an eternal redemption. It's done. It is finished. Not just in the earthly symbolic presence of God, but Christ entered into the veil in heaven, in the very presence of God. Not just at the footstool where the Ark of the Covenant is, but before the very throne of God in heaven. Christ has made that ultimate sacrifice and has secured for us what it says there, an eternal redemption. So the book of Leviticus has these offerings, these sacrifices. It has these feasts like the Day of Atonement and, the, and Passover. And it also has these laws. Laws about hygiene and sexuality. Laws about social justice. You know when Jesus you know, uh, says the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself? That's from Leviticus. It's from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. You have all of these laws that are laid out. And then when we come to the end of the book of Leviticus, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26. We see something quite remarkable as the story unfolds. Leviticus 26 verse 3. Do you have it there in your Bible? Leviticus 26 verse 3. Tell me I'm there. Even if you're home, say, I'm there. I've got it. My Bible's open. I got Leviticus 26 verse 3 open. I, I miss hearing the pages of everyone's Bibles turning here in this auditorium. Leviticus 26.3 says, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in the land securely. So, God has given his law, he's given these, these sacrifices, he's given these festivals, and notice the word if in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments, if you do this, then, then I will give you all of these blessings in the land where you will live. 
Look at verse 9. He says, I will turn to you and I will make you fruitful and multiply. That's right from Genesis chapter 1, chapter 9, uh, chapter 12. Fruitful, multiply, blessing. This is the, God's whole intention. Notice this. He says, I will confirm my covenant with you. Which covenant? Now let's, get the, let's get a look at the covenants on the, on the screen here. Remember, there was the Noahic covenant that God would never wipe out the earth with a flood like he, like he had. There was the covenant with Abraham uh, through the sign of circumcision that God would multiply him into a great nation. Now, both of those covenants were unilateral. There was no if-then But here we have in Leviticus 26, and if then, if you do your part, God says, I'll do my part. He's referring to the Mosaic covenant, which is a bilateral covenant. The people have responsibility and God has responsibility. God says, I will remember my covenant. Go back to Leviticus chapter 26. Look at Leviticus 26 verse 11 now. It says, I will make my dwelling among you. Look at verse 12. I will walk among you. He's going to say, if you follow my word, if you follow my, we're going to go back to Eden. God used to walk in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. And God is saying, I will walk with you and be your God and you shall be my people. There's an if then. It's a bilateral covenant. The people had responsibility and God would would bless them if they followed his word. But then look at Leviticus 26 verse 14. But, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, notice this, but break my covenant. Now look at verse 32, and I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it and will scatter you among the nations. You see, the Mosaic covenant was all about how they were to live in the promised land. And here, before they ever get there, multiple decades before they ever arrive in the promised land, God is telling them, if you don't live rightly while you're there, you will be cast out. He says, I will scatter you among the nations. See, this is the remarkable thing about the Bible when we read the storyline. This is the remarkable thing about how we can trust God's word. Is God's word just continually and repeatedly predicts the future. Let's just look at a timeline here on the, on the screen. Let's, back in Genesis, in 2081 B.C., In Genesis chapter 15, God specifically described the exodus. He said that they would be oppressed in a foreign nation, but that he would bring them out with great and mighty acts of power. And that came true in 1446 BC. Now we're in 1445 BC, a year later. And Leviticus chapter 26 is predicting the exile. Something that wasn't to happen until 586 BC. All that's not going to be told. Look how far down the storyline is. Look how many more books of the Bible we got to cover before we get there. But even in Leviticus, the exile is being predicted. And not only is the exile, but so that's the bad news. Here's the good news. Not only was the exile predicted, but the return from exile is predicted. Keep reading in Leviticus chapter 26. Look at verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity, verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. Not the covenant with Moses, not the Mosaic covenant. Because if he you, if you remembers the Mosaic covenant, then he'll remember that they broke it. 
but he's referring to a covenant that went even further back. I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will not remember the bilateral covenant that you broke, but I will remember the unilateral covenant that I made with Abraham and I will remember the land. And he promised to bring them back to the land. So the book of Leviticus is all about worship, that if the people were to live in community with God, if they were to live in relationship with God, they must live lives of worship and how they understood sacrifice and how they understood the feasts and how they understood God's law. Now we turn to the next a book in our Bibles, the book of Numbers. So turn to Numbers chapter 1 and verse 1. And it's in the book of Numbers where we come to the theme of wandering. So we have worship in the storyline. We have wandering in the storyline. And they, they wander in more ways than one. They don't merely wander geographically. They wander spiritually. They wander away from the Lord. They get off course in terms of their, uh, their pursuit and following God into, into the promised land. Numbers chapter 1 verse 1 says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness. Uh, in the wilderness, that's the Hebrew uh, title for this book, it, uh, Bemidbar. It means in the wilderness, taken right from that line. The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tent of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. So they stayed, they stayed at Mount Sinai for a year. They heard the Ten Commandments, they built the tabernacle, they got the instruction manual, they learned all about God's law and what it means to follow him. And now in verse 2, God says, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel. That's why our English Bibles call this book Numbers, because the first four chapters is census data. It's, it's, it's the result of, of the census that was to be taken. Now, in the midst of this census, God is also arranging what life is going to be like with him living among them. In Numbers chapter 2, he describes how the camp is supposed to be uh, set up. So let me, uh, I won't take you there in, in, this, in the scripture, but I'll show you here in a picture. The tabernacle was to be at the center, and there were to be people to the north, and to the east, and to the south, and to the west. The idea is God wants to live at the center of the lives of his people. He wants to be the central focus. And then we're also told, so that's how they're supposed to camp, but then also how they're supposed to travel. That the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to go first. And there's these two beautiful lessons in the book of Numbers. That God wants to be at the center of our lives and he wants to lead us. And he was going to lead them right into the promised land, but they ended up wandering. We also see, turn with me to Numbers chapter 6, after we learn about the census data, after we learn about the arrangement of the camp and how they're supposed to travel, that God is supposed to lead the way. Look at Numbers 6 verse 24. This was, this was a proclamation, a, a benediction, a blessing that the priests were supposed to declare over the people. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So here's the people. It's a new start. They've been rescued from Egypt. And what does God want to do? What does he want to be pronounced upon them every day? Blessing. 
And as we follow the storyline of scripture, we look back, we look back at Genesis chapter one of verse 28 and we see God blessed them. This is what he did to Adam and Eve. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Chapter nine, verse 11, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. To, to Abraham in Genesis 12, that says 22, it should be two. It says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. So they have been made into a great nation. They have been fruitful and they have multiplied. And now God wants every day his priests, his representatives to speak blessing. And the blessing comes from having God's face shine upon them. The blessing comes from the presence of God, which is symbolized in the tabernacle. Then we come to Numbers chapter 10 and verse 11. Find Numbers 10 and verse 11. It says, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony and started leading them out of Sinai into a place called Paran, into the wilderness. And what was intended was a two-week journey into the promised land. It was just going to take two weeks but they get to the very border of the promised land. God leads them with the, with the pillar of cloud and fire. All along the way, they're complaining. And God continually faithful, faithfully leads them. I mean, you read the book of the number, Numbers, I put myself in God's position. You know, I'm on a little family trip and I'm like, well, I'll turn this car around right now if you don't start behaving yourselves. And yet the, the the people of Israel just continually complained and grumbled and God was so patient. So they get to the border of the promised land. They send in spies, representatives from all of the tribes. And Joshua and Caleb, they come back with a positive report. But all of the other spies say, no way, there's giants there. These nations are big. There's walled cities. There's no way we can do it. So we come to Numbers chapter 14 and verse 3. And the people say, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. At, at, the, at the sight of hardship, at the sight of adversity, the people want to just turn around and go back to Egypt. And they've completely lost a sense of perspective of what God had done in their lives and what they had been rescued for. But loved ones, isn't that true of us? When things get tough, especially right now in this season with all of the COVID restrictions, things are getting tough in our lives. What are we turning to? Are we turning back to Egypt? Are we turning back to old habits or patterns of thinking or lusts or desires or sins, whatever they may be? Are we defaulting back thinking that my life would be better if I would just to live the way I used to live? And we can so easily return to sin. We can return to the very things that once enslaved us. Loved ones, this story is our story. These people are just like us. So they want to go back to Egypt. And so this two-week journey to the promised land becomes 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and complaining. To spare you all of the complaining, let me just jump ahead to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. Look with me at verse 5. It says, the people spoke against God and against Moses. 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? That's not why he brought them up. He brought them up to take them to the promised land, but they didn't want to go there. This was their choice that they're wandering in the wilderness. It says, for there is no food and no water. No food? Well, they got manna every day. So they're like a teenager staring at a refrigerator filled with food saying there's nothing to eat. They say we have no food and no water. The previous chapter in Numbers 20, God had just made water flow out of a rock. They say they have no water and no food. And then look what they say next. And we loathe this worthless food. So you do have food. (laughs) This miraculous food that God was providing for them every day. Verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among them. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. God was disciplining his people because they had lost their focus. They weren't just wandering geographically. They were wandering spiritually. They were thinking that God had brought them out there not to bless them, but to punish them. Verse 7, and the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Okay, now we're making some progress. They've recognized that they've sinned. This is a turning point. It says, we have sinned. We've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. You see, this is the point why God brings discipline into our lives. This is why the fiery serpents came, so that the people would turn and repent. So Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8, the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is how God chooses to roll out a vaccination. This is how God helps the people deal with this crisis that they are facing. They're being bit by these snakes, by these serpents. And all God, all God says is take a serpent made of bronze, put it on a pole and whoever looks, then they're going to be healed. They know that they've sinned and all they need to do to make things right is to just look at a bronze serpent on a pole. Now picture a bronze serpent being put onto a pole. It kind of makes you think of something, doesn't it? You know, you've got a, a bronze serpent going this way and a pole going that way. And all they needed to do was to simply look. All they needed to do was to just look at this bronze serpent on this pole. Loved ones, this story is our story. When we know that we've, just like these people, we grumble against a God who has done nothing but provide for us and bless us. We grumble and complain. We sin. We turn away from him. And Jesus said in John 3, verse 14 to 16, I'm sure you know John 3, 16. I'm not sure if you know John 3, 14 and 15. This is what Jesus said. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. How was the Son of Man lifted up? He was lifted up on a cross. That whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. The serpent for us 
is, is not a physical serpent, it's Satan who has lured us away so that we have sinned and all of us deserve death. The serpent lied to Adam and Eve, you will surely not die, but the wages of sin is death. All of us are condemned to die. All of us have had this poison and the son of man has been lifted up on the cross and all we have to do is look to him and believe. That's all we have to do. This story is our story. And then John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ is scandalous. All the people in the wilderness had to do was look at this bronze serpent. All all we must do is look to the Son of God, suffering and dying on the cross for our sins, and we will receive the gift of eternal life. This is the incredible story in the book of Numbers. Before we wrap up, uh, wrap up Numbers, I just got to tell you one amazing story. They, they journey through the wilderness and they end up coming to the plains of Moab, and this is going to set up the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the king of Moab, Balak, has a panic attack because he's seen the people of Israel. They're being miraculously provided for. How did they survive in the wilderness all of this time? How did they defeat some of the different enemies that they faced along their way? So he hires this, this shaman, this, this, this sort of witch doctor, medicine man, prophet named Balaam to come and to curse the people of Israel. And Balaam originally doesn't want to go and God actually appears to him and says he shouldn't go. Even his donkey starts talking to him and tells him, listen, you shouldn't, you shouldn't go here. This donkey has more wisdom than this prophet. And three different times this prophet opens his mouth and tries to curse the people and he's set on cursing them. And as he opens his mouth, he pronounces nothing but blessing. And exasperated in Numbers chapter 23, verse 11, Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. This is really just to fulfill what God said in Genesis 12, verse three, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It was even Balaam, this, this, this prophet who wanted to do nothing but curse the people of God. It was him actually who made the prophecy about the star in, that, that would appear in Bethlehem that would be the sign of the coming Messiah, the coming King. So the wandering comes to a close at the end of Numbers and God is relentless in blessing his people even though they are so unworthy. And then we come to the book of Deuteronomy. A Deuteronomy. Uh, Ramos means, or sorry, namos means law. Deut means two, like duet. So Deuteronomy means, means second law. It was a second reading. Moses is about to die. They're, they're in the plains of Moab and Moses gives a sermon series to sort of summarize everything that they have learned along the way. He repeats the Ten Commandments. He rehearses the different festivals and feasts that we learn about in the book of Leviticus. Probably the most famous passage in Deuteronomy is found in chapter 6, verse 5. It's called the Shema. 
because in uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, it begins with the word hear. That's the Hebrew word shema. Shema, O Israel, hear, listen. He gives them two commands. The first command is to listen. He says, listen, hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And then he says, you shall love. This is the second command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The people are commanded to hear and they're commanded to love. To love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what Jesus said was the first commandment. So the second commandment comes from Leviticus 19. The first commandment comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6. That they're to love God and they love God by following the law. Deuteronomy 6 goes on to describe the law and how they're supposed to, you know, attach it to their forehead and to their wrist, write it over their doorpost. When they're going, when they're coming, all the time they should be talking about the law of God. Then look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. And Moses is very concerned that the law of God and the storyline of Scripture, that it would be passed down to the next generation. And it's very, very important that we understand what, what is going on here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 20. He says, When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has commanded you? When your kids ask you, when your grandkids ask you, why do we have the Ten Commandments? Why do we follow the laws? Why do we practice these feasts? Why do we have these different laws about hygiene or about disease or about sexuality? Why do we have these laws? He says, then you shall say to your son, notice this, he doesn't say, then you shall say to your son, well, this is how we earn favor with God. This is how we get to heaven. This is how we become good people so that God could accept us. That is not what they say. Then you shall say to your son, verse 21, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that, we, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. There's the promise to Abraham. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statues to fear the Lord for our good. Notice, remember, the rescue always comes before the rules. It was true for these people then. It's true for us now. We follow God's law. We love our neighbor as ourselves. We love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not so that God will love us, but because God already has loved us. The rescue comes before the rules. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. In verse 1, Moses is retelling the story. He says, this, the whole commandment that I commanded you today, shall, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know what, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Look at chap Matthew chapter 4 on the screen. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness 
The people of Israel were in the wilderness. Jesus went to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, 40 years, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. The numeric connection is there. He was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Where is it written? Is written in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is succeeding where Israel failed. Israel failed in the wilderness. They complained and grumbled and sinned and rebelled. Where Jesus, when he was in the wilderness, he succeeded where Israel failed. He is the true offspring of Abraham. He is the one who did what the people of Israel couldn't do, who did what you and I couldn't do. And he is the one who went to the cross so that we could look to him and be saved like the people look to the bronze serpent. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. Deuteronomy 10 verse 12, God says, And now Israel, what does the Lord God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, the Lord your God, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet the Lord has set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You and all your peoples, as to this day, verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Moses tells the people, listen, you need a tender heart. You need to, you need to, you need to circumcise your heart. Your heart needs to be wounded and tender in order to love God properly. But the truth is the people did not love God properly. They did not have a proper heart towards God. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28 reads a lot like Leviticus chapter 26. There's this prediction of the exile. There's this promise of blessing and cursing. Look at Deuteronomy 28 verse 2. It says, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. And here it is again, if, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Look down at verse 5. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. Then look at Deuteronomy 28 verse 15. But if, here again is the if, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God and be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you, then all these curses shall come upon you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. And curse shall, shall be your coming in and curse shall be your going out in verse 19. In fact, if you look at Deuteronomy 28 verses 2 to 6 and put it right beside Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 19 and just hit like search all or, and replace all in a word processor and replace the word blessing with the, with the word curse, it's word for word. These are the blessings that will come your way and you're coming in, you're going out. These are the curses that will come your way and it hinges on obedience. It was a bilateral covenant. And again, God predicts the exodus a thousand years plus before this 
ever took place. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, look at verse 1. It says, when all these things come, up, come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So Deuteronomy 30 is fast forwarding into when you're in exile. They haven't even entered the promised land yet and God is already preparing them for their failure and for their exile. But he promises them, if in that moment, verse two, it says, and if you return to the Lord your God and your children and obey his voice, he's, he's leaving the door open for repentance. Then look down at verse six. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Don't, don't miss this, loved ones. Remember the most important command in Deuteronomy 6, the most important command that Jesus said we could ever live, live out is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 10, God said, you have to circumcise your heart. There, there has to be a tenderness. There must be a woundedness, a sensitivity. If it's even going to be possible for you to love God, you have to circumcise your heart. Moses is pleading with the people, change your heart. Make your heart tender and sensitive. But the people can't and they won't. And they failed in loving God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then it fast forwards to the exile. It says, you will be cursed because of that, because you fail. But then here in Deuteronomy 30, notice this promise in verse 6. The Lord will circumcise your heart. Chapter 10 says, you have to do it yourself, but they couldn't. Now in chapter 30, it says, after the exile, after you return, God is going to do something. He is going to do what you could not do. He's going to bring a transformation in your heart. And that's what we see in, prophesied by Ezekiel and by Jeremiah. The heart of stone being replaced with a heart of flesh, a heart that's circumcised. This is the whole point of what Jesus came to do by his spirit. So Moses ends his sermon series. and Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy and the torches pass to Joshua. And the question is, will Joshua be the next Moses? Will he be faithful in leading the people into the promised land? Well, we come to, to Joshua chapter 3. Look at verse 17 with me. Joshua is, is taking the initiative. This is the, his, his first time at the helm leading the people. They got to figure out a way to cross the Jordan River to get into the promised land. And remember, the ark always led the people no matter where they were going. And so the priest carrying the ark led the people right to the edge of the Jordan River. And Joshua 3.17 says, Now the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So God likes to do things in patterns and in repetitions. So we had the parting of the Red Sea. Now we have the stopping of the Jordan River. Once again, this the people of God are crossing on dry ground. Just like God was with Moses, he is with Joshua. The storyline continues. Then we come to Joshua chapter 5 and verse 13. 
It says, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. You see, Joshua was concerned about Israel versus Jericho. But this is the angel of the armies of the Lord. And he, listen, it wasn't about Israel. It wasn't about Jericho. It was all about God and his glory. He says, no, I'm for neither. The question that Joshua should be concerned about is not if the angel is for Joshua, is if Joshua is for the Lord. And then he gives them these incredible instructions to walk around Jericho six times and that the city of Jericho falls Jericho was shut up inside, but the, but the walls came tumbling down. Joshua chapter 6, verse 15, it says, On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And then they blow the trumpets, the people shouted, and God brings a great victory. The city of Jericho is destroyed. And even, listen, the city of Jericho has been, has been excavated in 1909 and 1930, 1950 by Kathleen Kenyon, And we see evidence of a massive wall that suddenly and drastically got destroyed. It, it's, it's part of history. The walls of Jericho were destroyed. But then look at Joshua chapter 7 verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. The people weren't supposed to take anything out of Jericho, but Achan, his heart was not sensitive. He didn't love God. He loved these possessions. And so here we see all of these miraculous acts of rescue by God are always followed by acts of sin. Abraham is given this great promise and then he goes and sleeps with Hagar. Noah is rescued from this flood, but then he gets drunk and his son behaves inappropriately towards him. In Exodus, the people are are saved through the Red Sea and yet they construct the golden calf. We see these great acts of rescue, but sin is, you see, people's hearts need to change. Even though the people are unfaithful, God proves to be so faithful. Look at Joshua 24, verses 44 to 45. It says, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. I'm in Exodus, I'm oh, sorry, I'm in Joshua 21, verse 45. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Look at verse 45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The promises going back to Genesis 12. They are now in the land. They are now a great nation. The promises that were made to Moses and the people and to Joshua, they were all fulfilled. The people are now in the land. Jericho wasn't the only battle. They won all of these battles. But there was a battle that was going to continue to be waged. Look at Joshua 24 verse 4. It says, And the people of Israel... Sorry, Joshua 24, verse uh, 14. I'm in the book of Judges. That's next week. Joshua 24, verse 14 and 15. The battle against the enemies on the outside had been won, but the battle against the enemies on the inside was going to continue to be waged. Joshua 24, verse 14. 
Joshua says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Notice this, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. Joshua had to continually tell people to put away their idols. Idols that were in their hearts. They, they had been through the golden calf. They had heard the Ten Commandments. And so the people were still having hard hearts, still turning toward idols. Their hearts still needed to be transformed, still needed to be transformed. The enemies had been defeated on the outside. They were in the promised land, but so much work still needed to be done on the inside. And that was work that Christ came to accomplish for our benefit. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this story. Lord, this story is our story, Lord. This is the, the story of my life. The story of every Christian's life is a story of our inability and your ability, our powerlessness and your power, our weakness and your strength, our sinfulness and your holiness. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. Lord, we can't love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength unless you transform our hearts. And we thank you that in Christ, you have transformed our hearts. Lord, help us to put away idols. Lord, help us, as Joshua says later, help us to choose this day whom we will serve. Lord, help us to fight the enemy that dwells within us so that we could live for you and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.